Welcome to Crime Below Zero, where the temperatures are cold, but the crime is colder. I'm your host, Courtney, and I live on a remote island in Alaska called Prince of Wales Island. While the temperatures don't quite reach below zero here, for much of this wild state, it does. I will be exploring all sorts of crime in the great state of Alaska and telling you about it. So let's get started with this week's story. Welcome back, listeners. This is part two of Robert Hansen's story. Last week, we covered his victims and his background. This week, we will focus on his capture. There was, however, one brave soul that seized the moment to escape. On June 13, 1983, Cindy Paulson was approached by Hansen and offered $200 to perform oral sex on him. She was 17 years old when she got in Hansen's car and he pulled a gun on her and drove her to his home in Muldoon. Muldoon is a major neighborhood on the east side of Anchorage, so it's not a secluded area by any means. At his home, he proceeded to rape and torture her and chained her neck to a post in his basement while he napped on his couch. When he woke up, he told her they were going to his cabin, which was only accessible by boat or bush plane. Paulson crouched in the back seat of his car with her wrist cuffed in front of her body, but planning her escape the entire time. When they got to the airport, Hansen was loading up the cockpit of his Piper PA-18 Super Cub Bush plane. Paulson saw her chance and she ran. She ran to 6th Street and flagged down a truck while Hansen was scrambling to recapture her. Thankfully, the driver of the truck was concerned with Paulson's appearance, so he pulled over to pick her up. He took her to the Mush Inn, where she bolted inside and begged the front desk clerk to call her boyfriend, who was also her pimp, at the Big Timber Motel. The Good Samaritan went on to his day of work and called the police to report the bizarre and scary incident. APD arrived at the Mush Inn, where they were informed that Paulson had gone to Big Timber Motel to meet up with her boyfriend. APD went to the motel and found her in room 110, still handcuffed, but alone. They took her down to the station, and she described Hansen to the police and told them that she left her shoes in the back of Hansen's car as evidence that she had been there, and she wasn't lying. Police questioned Hansen, and he said that Paulson was trying to give him a hard time because he wouldn't give in to her extortion demands. Even though Hansen had prior run-ins with the law, he came off meek, and of course his occupation as a humble baker, along with an alibi from a friend of his, John Henning, police did not consider him a serious suspect right away, and they let him go. Again. Detective Glenn Floth of the Alaska State Troopers had been investigating the discovery of several bodies. The first three victims to be found and investigated were Eklenta Annie, Joanna Messina, and Sherry Morrow. From these three women, investigators determined that they were most likely murdered by the same person, so Floth contacted John Douglas of the FBI. The troopers wanted Douglas to take a shot at coming up with an offender profile since this was the beginning of the behavioral analysis unit, and they needed to try anything to have something to go off. 
Douglas thought that the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, a history of being rejected by women, he would keep souvenirs of his victims, and that the killer would speak with a stutter. Using this profile, Floth investigated a number of suspects until he finally reached Hansen, who not only fit the profile, but owned a plane. With Paulson's testimony and Douglas's profile, Floth and the APD secured a warrant to search Hansen's plane, vehicles, and home. On October 27, 1983, investigators began the search and uncovered jewelry belonging to some of the missing women, an array of firearms including the known murder weapon, an aeronautical chart with 37 little X's on it hidden behind his headboard. Many of these marks lined up with sites of human remains already found and those later to be found. As Hansen was confronted with all this evidence found in his home, he denied it all for as long as he could stand. He eventually began blaming the women, saying that at one point one of his victims said he looked like the perfect dork as he tried desperately to justify his actions. He also said that it was their fault because they didn't do exactly what he had told them to, like they ran away or started fighting back. To be honest, he was a dork, and he used phrases regularly like gee whiz. He sounded like a character out of Leave it to Beaver, and he tried using that to get him out of trouble, but it wouldn't work this time. He went in circles during his confession about little details that didn't matter to police, like where he kept his spare plane key and one time when it was very hard to reach. However, at points during the confession, he claims not to remember some stuff, but he does remember other things like parts of the crime in great detail. He still tries to lie off and on during the confession to police, but he does a lot of, quote, I have a tough time talking about these things, end quote, and I don't remember exactly. He goes into the story of Cindy Paulson and he downplays everything, especially her escape. He says that when she ran, he just packed up and drove home, when we know he chased her down with a gun and seemed to go into full-blown panic mode. Anyone can tell listening to the confession tape excerpts that Hansen is ashamed of his despicable actions in his attempt to downplay or omit sections of story. Even though he did that, he eventually confessed to every piece of evidence placed in front of him and admitted to a spree of attacks against Alaskan women starting in 1971. His earliest victims were between ages 16 and 19 and not prostitutes, unlike the women that became his M.O. When Hansen was arrested, his charges were assault, kidnapping, multiple weapons offenses, theft, and insurance fraud. The insurance fraud was for a claim filed with an insurance company over the alleged theft of some hunting trophies, also known as taxidermy animal heads, and he used the proceeds to purchase his bakery, Hansen's Bakery. At the trial, he claimed that he later found the trophies in his backyard but forgot to inform the insurer. Hansen entered into a plea bargain for the murders after ballistics testing came back matching bullets at a crime scene to one of his rifles. He pleaded guilty to the four homicides of Morrow, Messina, Golding, and Atlanta Annie, and gave details of other victims in exchange for being able to serve his time in a federal prison along with no publicity in the press. 
Another stipulation of the plea bargain was him explaining the X's on his aviation map and locating other victims. Hansen also confirmed the theory that he would release some of his victims and hunt them down, and how they would initially be abducted. He also claimed to sometimes let victims go if she were able to convince him that they wouldn't go to the police. He saw women in two categories, good and bad. He saw them less than human if they were to offer sexual favors for money, even though he did most of the offering. It wasn't his fault that he wanted them. It was their fault for letting him want them. He said, quote, She had to come out and say we could do it, but it's going to cost you some money. Then she was no longer, I guess what you might call, a decent girl, end quote. He showed the investigators 17 grave sites in and around South Central Alaska, 12 of them investigators were unaware of. There were plenty of marks on his chart that he simply refused to give any details about, including three in Resurrection Bay near Seward. Investigators maintain confidence that these include Mary Thill and Megan Emmerich. Hansen straight up denied murdering them. Only 12 of a probable 37 victims were exhumed and returned to their families. Hansen was eventually sentenced to 461 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Hansen was transferred to a few different penitentiaries until he ended up in Anchorage Correctional Complex for health reasons in May of 2014. He died shortly thereafter on August 21, 2014, at the age of 75 at Alaska Regional Hospital in Anchorage of natural causes due to lingering health conditions. In the decades following her escape, Cindy Paulson returned to the life she knew of sex work and drugs. However, when Vanessa Hutchins played her in the movie Frozen Ground, she agreed to talk to Hutchins. It was the first time she shared her story with another person or media outlet. It was said that Paulson was married with three kids at the time the movie came out in 2013. I, for one, hope she found healing and happiness over the years. A couple of positives to come out of all of this mess is that the Alaska State Troopers created methods to deal with sexual assault victims, and they built a $56 million crime lab to process evidence neither of which existed before. Sources for this episode include Robert Hansen's Wikipedia page, a grunge.com article titled How the Butcher Baker Was Eventually Caught by Tom Quackenbush, the last podcast on the left episodes 308 and 309, The Big Book of Serial Killers Volume 1 by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe, and a Leland Hale blog post with audio and transcript excerpts of Hansen's confession. Thank you for joining me for part two of Robert Hansen's story, and join me next week when I cover another very cold crime. Please follow me on Instagram at CrimeBelowZero and feel free to email case suggestions to CrimeBelowZeroPod at gmail.com. Download and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox, and please leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
There is a link in the episode description for listener support. If you'd like to support this podcast, please click the link. Thanks so much for all your support by just listening every week to the stories I tell you. Be safe out there. Thank you.